that centers in on the mental as well as the physical side of sports and coaching. T.K. Griffith and Scott Matthew Callahan are your hosts, and between them, they bring over 50 years of coaching experience to the table with success in both boys and girls' athletics. Their expertise comes from the locker room, the classroom, and their living room. Now, the teacher coach with TK and Scott. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to the Teacher Coach Podcast. If you'd like to be a title sponsor, please reach out to Scott and I via email. And there is an opportunity to sponsor the show at the bottom of the Buzzsprout site via the Patreon app. It is also available on your favorite podcast provider. Again, thank you very much for listening to the Teacher Coach. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Teacher Coach. We are blessed and lucky today to have one of the finest art teachers and artists in the greater Akron area with us, or Northeast Ohio, I should say, in Mr. Micah Krause, ladies and gentlemen. He is a longtime art teacher at Archbishop Hoban High School, but he's also an artist in the greater Akron area who um, has has won uh, several contests, in, including the Summit Art Space, um, where he won first place this past summer in a, in a uh, photograph, an engraved photograph called Ho-Chan. Um, but really, that's not what this is about. Uh, Micah is a person who has uh, 110% integrity in everything that he does, who cares deeply about kids, and who I believe um, exudes the uh, behaviors of the teacher coach, as we call it, in the classroom. So, Micah, welcome to the program. I guess I just want to start with, um, I, and if, in case you haven't listened to the podcast, it's a little bit sports-oriented, but we didn't want it to be so. We wanted it to be more about the philosophy of being a teacher-coach in life in the way that we impact other people. So um, somebody you know who works at the post office or at a restaurant or a, a mom or dad down the street or a business person, in my estimation, can be a teacher-coach in the way that they deal with other people um, from 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 their impact to that person to their patients to the 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 way that they uh, encounter each other during the day and then I guess more literally uh, when it does extend into extracurriculars and coaching we see the highest model of the teacher coach as somebody who's in the building living the grind of the academic life with the kids during the day but then after the school day continues to extend in a co-curricular with those kids and we see that as the highest form of a coach as opposed to perhaps somebody who comes in from outside of the building although there's nothing wrong with that and it doesn't mean they're a lesser coach but we like we like the teacher coach model so it means a lot of different things and I've just talked a lot but I want to start with this Micah how is an art teacher a coach? Well let me as I'm thinking about that, let me ask you, is this segment brought to us by uh, a pro-turf, astro-turf? <laughs> I just, uh, um, that's what I'm most used to hearing you say. Absolutely. This is, this is, uh, this is brought to us by Progress Synthetic Turf here at Archbishop Hoban okay, High School. Uh, they've given the same amount that all of our other sponsors have given, which is zero. <laughs> right. I take Good. that back, by the way. We do have one sponsor, ladies and gentlemen. Father Mike Osberg did, did donate $50 to the program, but it's going to be a one-time uh-huh. donation only. So he might get us through this first month. <laughs> well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. I, I was really excited and honored to be, be invited. It's funny. I've always, I've, during my time of teaching, I've had a, a couple of times where a kid slipped and called me coach. <laughs> and uh, that's always been like a, a moment that brought some shine. I was just like, oh, yeah. <laughs> cool. All right. And I think that's because um, a coach is somebody that I see as someone that brings hard, hard love and intensity, um, teaches the hard lessons, 
um, through like practical application and practice and all those things. And I admire all those things, but I, I don't see like, those are not things that I see within myself all that much. Cause mm-hmm. I tend to be much more of a nurturer and, um, someone that is an encourager, which I'm sure again, are part of coaching. Yeah. But I had my, I, like, it makes me excited when a kid has said that. Cause I'm like, Oh, cool. I'm glad that you would make that mistake. Right. Um, I think an art teacher is like a coach just in those couple of ways that I mentioned. Like yeah. students come into the art room quite often very nervous about their inability. And um, so it's part of a, an art teacher's job to convince them that they're capable of this, that um, the creative process is a process. Mm-hmm. And some people are born with a gift that helps them move through that process more instinctively. Right. And with greater skill naturally. Yeah. But that everyone can learn the steps. Right. Um, and then secondly, I think the, the job of an art teacher at, for the early stages is um, to convince people of the legitimacy of yeah. the, the need of yeah. being part of that class, especially, right. you know, they're coming from different situations in elementary school. Um, and so they may not have had much art education or much structure in that environment. I think that's really, that's, those are kind of our two a days to start the school year is, right. uh, you know, you can do this yeah. and here's why it's important that you do this. Yeah. I, think, uh, I love what you just said because um, a couple podcasts ago, somebody was reflecting on one of their most important teacher coaches in their life. And I asked them what the gift was that that teacher or coach gave them. And, and they said that that teacher or coach gave them um, somebody who believed in them. Actually, it was Mr. Finnefrock. It was Kevin Finnefrock, a superintendent uh, of East Canton School, said that one of his earliest influences was somebody who the gift that, that that teacher gave him or the coach gave him was the gift of belief. And if, if you can help somebody believe that, that they can do something, um, that you have moved mountains, is, is that kind of similar to the art classroom? That's absolutely it. I, um, those are hallmark moments in my life too, where just a, a little throwaway statement probably by a, another adult or a, a um, instructor of mine has uh, changed the course of what I thought was possible within myself. Mm-hmm. And uh, most recently, um, you know, over the past few years, I've gotten uh, kind of fallen in love with bicycling. And a few years ago, I was riding with a group of people who I really just admired their stamina and strength and skill in riding yeah and one of them just looked at me midway through a ride and was like man you're a really strong rider wow and it was just a little throwaway nice thing to say but i still think about that you know and i need those things even as an adult right to say like oh yeah i can do this yeah and um so even more so for a 14 or 15 year old having an adult say to you you know what you've got ability you can do this Right. Um, can be an encouragement and it can also be a reminder to them that we have expectations of them. Yep. And that they're capable. Mike, do you ever feel as though you have to explain the legitimacy of your passion and your discipline? I think oftentimes as coaches, TK and I coach basketball, um, people just don't get it. I mean, it's a stupid game to so many people, but for us, it's so much more than that. And um, to us, it's an art form. And, and I know you teach and practice different art forms. Um, what about legitimizing what you do? It's encouraging for me to hear that that's a battle you guys have as well. 
Um, cause I think each of us in our, in our battles think it's the only one sometimes. <laughs> uh, yeah, all the way through, um, since I started my college time, I've felt like I've had to legitimize or explain why it's, it's something necessary and it's created within me, um, kind of a, probably not a chip on my shoulder. I don't think I'm that much of a spiteful person or motivated by that, but Mm-hmm. I do have a chip <laughs> and it's um, it comes from in college I was an art education major and when I would go to my studio classes those professors and fellow students would be like oh you're just an art ed student mm-hmm. so I wasn't <laughs> legit as an artist right because I wanted to be a teacher <laughs> and then when I was in teacher circles people would be like oh you're going to be an art teacher because I wasn't going to be a math teacher or a core teacher. Right. And so you start to fall within these rungs. And then even within my own art, yeah, I wanted to be a printmaker. And so the painters and sculptors would be like, oh yeah, well printmaking. Right. Yeah, everybody had this like evaluation system that yeah. chopped down. Right. Um, and I, I got really frustrated by that, but what it did was it made me know, have to know why my things were legitimate. Yeah. And start to create that definition in my mind and self-assuredness to say, like, what are these people talking about? Right. Like, right. Working my butt off. This matters. Yeah. I get to, and th- these are things that I say to kids now, that I hope that they find a calling in life mm-hmm. that I- I've gotten so lucky to pursue. Yeah. I get to teach kids all day. Right. And, and see them in some of their greatest struggles and greatest triumphs. I get to go to a place every day in brains. And then after I leave school, I go home and work in a studio and make my own art. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't think you can win more than that, you know? It doesn't get any better um, than that, I'll tell you. So one of the things I wrote down is, um, after you had invited me to do this, TK, was uh, just a thought that um, I think as a coach and as a teacher, one of the things that works the best for me is just modeling through doing. Mm-hmm. And um, as a more of a quiet presence in a classroom, um, I find that consistency in doing is the greatest form of advocacy. It's hard for people to delegitimize things mm-hmm. when they see your passion for it, yeah. And when you're committing your life to it, right. Um, and if they do try to chop the legs out of that, a lot of times everybody else will look around and do the work for you of being like. What are you talking about? Right. <laughs> Dude's right. in love with this. Yeah. You know, there's got to be something here. Yeah. When- yeah, I, I can remember um, graduating from high school eons ago, and my mom threw a graduation party for me, and I couldn't stand the party. <laughs> and the reason I couldn't is because so many adults within my family and family friends, they would ask me, so what are you going to study in college? And I told them that I wanted to be a teacher. And every single, at least my memory is, I probably had five or six males basically tell me what a big mistake I was making. (laughs) And they didn't understand why I wasn't interested in law or business or medicine. And those are fantastic vocations. Absolutely. But I'll always remember that. And, and, And I think one of the reasons why I... Um, I, I love being a teacher 
is because you can encourage kids to chase their passion, whether it's art or music or athletics or business or law, um, whatever it might be. And, and, and Micah, really, that's what I hear you saying. Um, it's not a chip on your shoulder, but it is a realization that once you find your passion and you, um, you work and live through that passion, you can really impact other people. And that's what life's about. That's right. Yeah. Um, you know, I've become suspicious of anybody that tries to legitimize themselves by delegitimizing someone else. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and that's just kind of a good life yeah. <laughs> knowledge, but also as a teacher of a, a non-essential course, right. <laughs> I guess, uh, an elective course. Um, I've tried to hold true to that as well. If I try to legitimize art classes by delegitimizing right. other classes, I'm not doing anybody any favors. Yeah, I'm hurting the art department. Right. And so this is that rising tide idea. If we can lift everybody, if we can raise the water for everyone, we all float higher. Yeah. And if, a, I mean, is there anything better than a kid that, um, is going to pursue law or medicine or something big brain in their head also goes through the highest levels of art classes. Mm-hmm. Right. That only helps the yeah. legitimacy of the art department. And it's going to help that kid as a lawyer or a surgeon or whoever, as yeah. they have to think through things creatively. Absolutely. Um, so we, we can't do it by ourselves. We don't yeah. want to do it by ourselves in any subject yeah. area. And um, it just becomes so much more interesting when our kids are deeply imbued in a lot of different subject areas. It's yeah. again a thing that keeps me coming back to Hoban. Yeah, is that desire to see kids immersed in a lot of different pursuits right. to have a lot of passions. Mike, I want to go back to what you said about modeling through viewing and, and doing. Um, can can you can you tell me more about that? Because because if I'm not, um, I, w- I want to completely understand what you meant by that. Sure. Well, uh, again, another thought I jotted down was um, that relates to this, I think. I I see two types of coaches and maybe two types of teachers. Um, One is a former player that pursues coaching. Mm -hmm. And another is an academic understanding Mm -hmm. of the sport that never had playing experience Mm -hmm. but has a passion for the sport and a special intellect for it Mm -hmm. and can walk in and and strategize in a way that, that works. Yeah. And I think the same thing for teachers as well. Yeah. Um, there are some people that are super, super active in their personal knowledge base or their subject area. Yeah. And they can translate that into the classroom. Uh-huh. And then there's other people that are not active in their personal lives in their area of subject, but have such an ability as a teacher. Yeah. They could teach probably any subject. Right. And be successful because that's how they're wired. Yeah. That's what they know how to do. Yeah. They both have strengths and pitfalls. Yeah. You know, just because you're a good player does not mean you're going to be a good coach. <laughs> Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Um, and, and vice versa. You may be a little out of touch with the realities of what it is to be, in my case, an artist. Yeah. If you don't do it. Right. And so you're going to lack some of that understanding. Yeah. So they both have their areas. Yeah. Um, I just, I, I'm a person that in every phase of my life, I only understand things by doing it. Yeah. And fortunately, not necessarily in all like bad decision areas, sure. but <laughs> sometimes I can learn lots well, that, of Well, that's good. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but anything that I want to know uh, yeah. deeply, I have to do it. Okay. Um, and so 
you know, the, the kind of balance, there's, there's a better word than balance and I'm right. not sure what it is, but yeah. that duality in life yeah. of being an artist and a yeah. teacher, yeah. they coexist. Is it a symmetry or? It's not symmetrical. Okay. It's not. It's a, um, you know, those like gel filled stress balls. Right. And when you squeeze it, it kind of bubbles out on the end. Yeah. That's a little more what it's like. Okay. Is sometimes all the pressure is on the teaching. Right. And the art just gets displaced. Yeah. And then sometimes all the pressure is on making art. And the teaching, yeah. maybe we're in an easier time of year or it's summer. Yeah. yeah. Teaching gets set aside a little bit. Right. Very rarely is that thing in stasis. Yeah. In, in perfect symmetry. Yeah. So it's not really balance. It's something else. It's a pendulum. Yeah. Um, but um, that doing aspect of it, it has been uh, non uh, so consistent mm -hmm. throughout my 20 years um, of yeah. when I do something as an artist, it's going right. to find its way into the classroom. Yeah. Micah, um, I, that, that, that's a great image that you just gave us there. And I, I feel like you're always walking around with two of those stress balls in each hand. Um, and, 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 you're, and, you're, and I, I wish I need to buy one. <laughs> because I, I feel like it's a great way. Most coaches need those, uh, basketball coaches. Yeah. They, they need those to kind of get out some stress during the day. But what I mean by what I mean by it seems like you're always walking around with two of them is because I've never seen you angry uh, in my life. You're, you, you said you're a nurturing coach and you're patient and, and you observe and, and you're, you're, I guess I would say, gentle. Um, I'm just curious, where did that come from? Because art to me takes so much patience that I personally know, and I've had this when I'm helping kids write, um, I've gotten better at it, but in my first seven to 10 years, I would get so frustrated if somebody can't write the, 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 the sentence that I want them to write, and, and I don't know how to explain it to them. Yeah. It's like I'm speaking Chinese when I say this is the way to make a fluid, crisp, you know, vibrant sentence. Um, and, and, and I would want to get mad and I would, I would probably get angry. I don't know if I would yell at them or not, but I, I know I would personally get frustrated. How have you become such a nurturing um, presence? Is it, is it just in your DNA? I had a great model, have a great model in my dad. Um, he's truly, he's frustratingly patient. Mm-hmm. And uh, just two quick anecdotes. One, he and I have taken a lot of motorcycle trips together. Mm -hmm. We rode out to uh, Nova Scotia. Holy cow. And just a father-son trip, like 10-year anniversary of another big trip we took. So we're way up in Cape Breton. We're literally on the easternmost part of the continent. And it's windy. It's beautiful. We're in the middle of nowhere um, on this campground. And... Um, we each have our own tents. One of the other guys camping comes over. It's like the middle of the night, four in the morning, maybe. And he shakes us awake. And uh, so my dad comes out and wakes me up. And Micah, somebody kicked our, somebody knocked our motorcycles over. Wow. Whoa. We're in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. So if somebody screwed up our bikes. We yeah. were in big trouble. Yeah. We go out and we look, oh my gosh, you're right. So we lift the bikes back up. Through some quick investigation, we realize that someone tried to steal them. They like tried to bore out the ignition and oh my there's footprints on the gas tank that kicked them over because they were upset. Yeah. And my, my dad, I was upset because I just bought this bike. It was yeah. used, but, you know, big deal to me. Yeah. My dad had just refinished his whole bike, sanded oh it, painted it, did the whole deal. Yeah. And the whole right side of his bike was scratched up with gravel and all kinds of problems. Right. And I'm just flabbergasted. Yeah. <laughs> 
And uh, the, the guy that was, we didn't know that had woken us up is standing there kind of waiting to see what we're going to do. And my dad looks over at me and he goes, well, at least they're paid for. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that was frustratingly patient right yeah. there. <laughs> All I wanted him to do was drop some MFs. Right, like I've right. never heard my dad yeah. never said a swear word, but I just wanted him to explode. Yeah. But he was like, you know what? Right. We're okay. We're yeah. fine. And after I got over the frustration of that, that was such a gift. Mm-hmm. It was like an hour later, we hiked up into the woods, we made coffee, we watched the tide roll in. It yeah. was magic. Wow. Watched the lobster boat, boats trolling. And there was none of that pall of anger hanging over the whole thing. Right. Where as a nurturing person, I would feel like I had to tidy it up yeah. and make sure everything was okay and yeah. problem solved. Never existed. Hmm. He saved that moment for us. Wow. And the rest of the trip. Yeah. Um, and there's a number of other times I've screwed up as a kid and messed up yeah. something he loved. And, yeah. and he just was like, whatever. Not without consequence. Sure. But the consequence wasn't his outburst. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I think about those things all the time. I do yeah. think it's in my DNA to have a low blood pressure. Right. But um, I, I just, nothing good comes from blowing up on somebody. Right. And, and I've said to students a number of times, guys, we're not trying to split the atom here. Yeah. Okay. If you screw up, who cares? Right. Right. Seriously. Who yeah. cares? We'll get new paper out. It's right. fine. Yeah. Because no, nobody's going to explode. No one's going right. to die. Right. You know, we're, this is small, small beans here. Yeah. Let's appreciate the opportunity to fail. Right. Right. And, um, I don't know. I think that that kind of grace has been given to me so many times. Right. And I've also felt the opposite yeah. of people that have just blown off the handle. And it's just like, yeah. why? And, right. and it, it becomes a joke, really, yeah. as opposed to a learning opportunity. So yeah. um, I do, I have worked over the years on being able to express my hurt or yeah. Yeah. anger because I'm much more instinctive at just swallowing that and kind of eating it down, Yeah, especially with fellow adults. Yeah. Um, so I've tried to get better about that because that's not healthy either. Right. Um, but yeah, definitely my instinct is to swing way towards the end of yeah. resolution Yeah. And, and moving on Right. and not having a memory. Yeah. Micah, you just said appreciating the opportunity to fail. And I think that's so important because I think that that's when we grow the most. Um, what about as an artist outside of the classroom? Um, failure might mean you don't um, win a job or you don't make money. Um, how do you balance that as an artist outside um, of being with your students? You know, in the school context, we say to kids that failure is a great learning opportunity, but we don't really give them a chance. And maybe even in the sports oper- uh, sports situation, you know, if we look at a failure as a missed shot as opposed to a lost game, I think that's more tangible and realistic. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot to learn by losing games and by failing a test or a class. But that's ha- high consequence, you know, and, and that learning only comes long down the road quite often. Um, so, and I'll, I'll get to my own artistic practice, but for students, I have a really hard time remembering that it's scary to fail as a kid, um, that it seems like the end of the world. And, um, and also I have a hard time, I need to remember to, to show them 
that failure can be along the path, that if we're observing, if we're engaged in the process, we can see those failures and look for the opportunities mm-hmm. and not wait until we've failed the big thing at the right. end. So as an artist, that's what I do. And, um, you know, if I'm making something and I, I don't know, I screw something up, you know, something in the process goes wrong. I always uh, typically have three or four, maybe more things happening at the same time that I'm working on. And so I'll just set that one aside, move on to the next mm-hmm. and give my brain a little time to think about it. Um, again, another dad wisdom when you're working on a car and you can't get a nut broken on something, you can either keep cranking on it and probably shear the bolt off and now have a real problem on your hands, bust your knuckles up and get upset, or you can stop, go make a sandwich, eat the sandwich and go back and you'll probably see the solution. Yeah. And that's artistically, you know, my, my studio is the sandwich. I, yeah. I can step away and just be like, there is a solution there. I just, I'm too blind to it right now. I'm in the middle. Yeah. So I got to step out. Yeah. And usually um, that results in something that is so much more interesting than what my original idea was. Right. Because I, I could have never done it consciously. Yeah. Mike, Mike That's in terms, yeah. yeah. Isn't that a great example of, of, of uh, and I know I'm assuming in the art world, and I can't think of a famous piece right now, but I'm sure you could where a failure was actually turned into a masterpiece because of somebody's mistake. Um, Is is that kind of how you see it? Well, and that's just it, is the failures along the way, the the dropped balls and the, um, I'm working on a process right now that requires sunlight. Mm -hmm. It's a photo process, and so I'm having a little bit of trouble getting the exposure right. (laughs) Because we're in Ohio? (laughs) (laughs) Because there is no sun, so failure number one, depending on sun. Yeah. I'm not going to fail this project. Yeah. I know that. Uh, I won't let that happen. There are going to be a lot of failures along the way. Right. And so that's the difference. That's what I want my students to learn. Yeah. Because that is pivotal. That That's what stops people from pursuing something deeper, right. more deeply, is when they think the first failure is the end. That's it. I, I blew right. it. Yeah. They don't realize that now you probably have 10 or 12 more of those failures to go through before (laughs) you get to the end. Yeah. So that when you put that thing on the wall, you put up your gallery display, you're like, hell yes. Right. I, I overcame so much to get that thing done. Yeah. I can't believe it. I did it. Right. Um, If it's easy, it's not, you don't have much ownership. Right. You know, push yourself to the point of having to fail. Yeah. In order to achieve beyond what you thought was possible. Right. That's pretty rah, rah. Like I don't, yeah. Necessarily think that way in the moment, but yeah. um, but I've learned through years of doing stuff that it's got to go wrong yeah. at some point, right? In order for it to go right. And Scott, you mentioned like not getting a a client or a proposal picked up, a gallery submission. I mean, um, and this is something students will learn if they pursue art as they go into college and beyond. That it's you know ten failures for every success. Mm-hmm. You've got to just keep sending out the applications and applying to shows and doing the calls for proposals, all that kind of stuff and, and getting shot down um, for a zillion different reasons. Yeah. Only one of which is because your work might not be strong enough, right. but there's a lot of other reasons that might affect that. Yeah. And that doesn't matter. Just keep doing it. Yeah. Because eventually either you'll realize I shouldn't be an artist. You know, right. this is not yeah. for me. Right. Or 
people will start to wake up to what it is you're doing. Yeah. And you'll get better at the process. Your work will get better. And, um, you know, eventually you start to have a little more success if you keep at it. Right. But, yeah, it's still frustrating. I mean, yeah. it's irritating, especially then if you go to a show or I'm sure it's the same if you see a team that you know is not as skilled or right. uh, well-coached or talented succeed at a level that your team hasn't. Yeah. It's like, why? That is not <laughs> justice. Yeah. And uh, that's just the way it is. That's right. the way the cookie crumbles. Right. Micah, what you mentioned in basketball we call next play mentality. Um, next yeah. play mentality is the ability to very quickly forgive yourself um, and move on to the next play. So if you had if you had a turnover at midcourt, you, you don't sit there and sulk about it for three seconds while the opponent maybe dunks on you. You, you hustle back and maybe you take a charge and then you made something good out of something bad. Um, so I think that really relates. Uh, it, the next play mentality is more of a life philosophy than just a basketball philosophy. But I, I want to go back to the gift that your father gave you with this nurturing and patient mindset. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like the best and the worst of us as coaches, we follow patterns of what we were taught, not necessarily by our dads, because um, my, my dad wasn't really a yellow or a screamer when he coached youth. He wasn't a coach, but as a teacher or a coach in his own life, he, he never really yelled. Um, and, and I'm not a yeller by nature, but I do I do yell sometimes because the patterns that I was taught as a coach is that you need to do that. But when right. I think about the gift that your your dad gave you, I, I think that you could be such a great coach in a um, in a nurturing, gentle way without anger. Do Do you think that that could Do you think that could transfer over to the sports world? Your style. Um. So yeah, I don't know. Uh, I bet it could. Uh, I I probably if I were to pursue coaching something. Um, I think it, well, I don't have much athletic expertise, so it would be in something yeah. that I'm not a. Uh, but it could be uh, in bicycle. It could be. A, what if that's a bicycle team that's competing against other teams? I mean, you are a bicyclist, so I'm just wondering. If it were, yeah, if it were something like that, I, well, you know what? It would come from the same place that my teaching of art comes from. I did not have much confidence as a high school student. I was the art kid, yeah. you know, in, in high school, a small high school up in Conneaut. Um, I was the art kid, but the reason I got into art education was because I asked my art teacher, what should I do? I I love art. What do I do? Yeah. And she said, Micah, you should be an art teacher because it's easy. It's an easy (laughs) degree. It's an easy job. Wow. And I've reflected many times (laughs) on the fact that it was for her. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because of that, I didn't have much of an art education. Right, right. And I got to college and I got my butt kicked. I was just like, oh, man, I'm way out of my element here. Right. And it took a long time. A lot of those little throwaway comments and intentional comments from professors and and peers that slowly, like, built my confidence to the point that I was like, oh, yeah, I do know what I'm doing here. Right. I, I do have a special thing to give to this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in, in coaching, if it were something like a bicycle team, I'd be able to say, listen, I'm coming from zero. Yeah. I started doing this at 40. Right. So <laughs> I don't have any special insight to give you other than yeah. you just have to keep doing yeah. it. Yeah. And I think that where the negative, the thing that I have to battle as a nurturing person mm-hmm. is that um, – it becomes very easy, especially in the factory uh, system of a school, to just be a nurturer. Yeah. 
and just walk by and be like, oh, that's great. Yeah. Oh, good job. Oh, right. nice. Right. Excellent. Cool. Yeah. And, you know, it takes about two days of that and then yeah. it means nothing. Right. And so um, I, I have to force myself, especially when things are especially busy, yeah. to stop and, and say, okay, let's look at where this could go. Where yeah. could this go next? Yeah. What aren't you doing? Right. Um, because it's much, much easier for everybody. Yeah. If I just walk by and say, cool, yeah. good, you got that done. Right. Next. Yeah. You know, um, and there's a real temptation to do that. Yeah. And I'll say this online situation we're in actually helps me not do that. Right. <laughs> Fight that temptation. Right. Because it, the only communication I have with students is to give feedback. Yeah. And so it better, if I've got to type it right. or do an audio recording of it, it yeah. might as well mean something. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And not just be a throwaway. So, right. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, um, I'm not very good at doing things unless, like I said, unless I'm super passionate about them. Okay. So, yeah, that's where I think I'm struggling on the coaching question. But yeah. it's a good one. Yeah, I'll think about that. I mean, I, I'll, I'll answer part of it for you, Mike. I, I think you could. I think you could have a ton of success because I think when you're authentic, kids know it. And I think there's a lot of different ways to be successful. Um, I don't think it has to be one way or one style. And I, I and I, I think you can be successful and be like a Tom Izzo, who's kind of a crazy lunatic on the sidelines and super intense. But I also think you can be quietly intense and just have high expectations of people, um, and they may respect that. Scott? And, and Mike, I would answer it in this way. You said something about your dad when you were on that motorcycle trip about how when you were going to lose your temper – and you were feeling emotional, your dad, and this is what you said, your dad saved that moment for you and him. Mm -hmm. And I think the art of coaching is knowing when you have to save moments for your team. You know, individually, when a kid is losing confidence or he or she is not playing as much or maybe uh, is having some pressure at home or is just not feeling like he or she is part of a team mm-hmm. or collectively when your team needs a teachable moment yeah. and, and you have the perspective and maybe the calmness about you to save the moment. Um, so I, I don't think there's any doubt. I think where people would question what we're talking about a little bit is this idea of, okay, when you get in the heat of the moment in a highly competitive environment, how does that translate? Mm-hmm. I think that that's I yeah. think that's worth exploring. But I, I agree with TK. I think your calmness and authenticity kind of rises above that. Guys, I'm starting to get the feeling that this is all a really built up um, weird <laughs> interview to see if you can get an assistant basketball coach. Yeah. Well, we do <laughs> have an o- we, we do have an opening right now, Micah. <laughs> For um, no money, I, I do want to see how you dribble with your left hand if you have a ball available. Um, Listen, I've got short yeah. shorts and a whistle. <laughs> yep, that's and, all you uh, need. I, I, I think I'm like good to go. Very, very unhappy um, parents. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, thanks. <laughs> Mike, I, I want to go back and trace your journey to becoming an art teacher. You talked a little bit about yeah. it, but um, when, when did you find a passion for art as a youngster in Conneaut? And, and what was it? Was it Conneaut High School that you went to? And who were some of your influences as in the classroom, maybe, um, you know, grade, grades four through 12? Yeah. Uh, as a kid, I wanted to either be a fireman, an artist, or work at McDonald's. <laughs> so those are my three. <laughs> 
three passions. Right. And I worked at Dairy Queen in high okay. school, so I got that one checked off the yeah. box. I was a bit of a pyromaniac as a youngster, so I kind of got that one <laughs> yeah. checked. Yeah. So the rest of my life is the art thing now. Right. Um, I, you know, I had a lot of really great teachers. Um, Mr. Rhodes was uh, a theater and yeah. English teacher in high school, and he took a very self-conscious, like, it was a weird mix of an extroverted kid. Mm-hmm. Um, my sister gave me a lot of, older sister gave me a lot of um, modeling of just being different yeah. and being able to love that about yourself Yeah. Um, at a small, pretty rural high school. Right. So we were kind of the, the weirdos. Um, but so there was that part of me, but I was also really self-conscious. Yeah. Um, and so Mr. Rhodes helped me break through that. And um, mm-hmm. I think my freshman year it was, I was in a Midsummer Night's Dream. I was bottom the weaver, <laughs> making an ass of myself. <laughs> um, but, and that really woke me up a little bit yeah. in a way. And he was a constant balance of a guy that was a nurturer, mm-hmm. but was very sarcastic <laughs> and, and, you know, pretty hard on yeah. people. He was, yeah. was not always a nice guy. Yeah. Um, but I learned a lot from that. And, uh, you know, my art teacher was very supportive. Right. Mrs. Myers. Yeah. Um, but it was just in an era where the art teachers had gone through a phase, like it was the end of the nurturing phase. Right. Um, in, in teacher training. Yeah. And so there was really no pedagogy that right. any of those teachers learned. Wow. Um, it was all just materials management. Yeah. And make sure the kids get a pat on the back. You right, know, right. Um, so I didn't get much in terms of skill from her, but she okay. was encouraging. She okay. gave me, you know, an hour a day that I could just go somewhere and be myself. Right. Um, I had a great soccer coach in high okay. school. We just had like a city club team. Okay. Um, and uh, Mr. Young, he was awesome. Those, all those people just modeled just goodness. Yeah. Um, I grew up, my dad's a minister. I, okay. I grew up in that church family okay and had a lot of people that cared about me you yeah. know um my grandpa is uh was a carpenter okay and so i would you know all summer long i would be his little tag along buddy yeah and so um and upon reflection he gave me some pretty crappy jobs <laughs> <laughs> i think it was more than friendship right <laughs> right but um i it meant a lot to me to see people using tools yeah. and not be afraid of them right. and, and to have to figure out how to use them in non-conventional ways. Right. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like yes. I have a table saw, but I have to do this job. Yeah. How do I solve it with that? Cause I don't have 200 bucks to go buy the right tool. Right. Um, my dad is a total tinkerer with cars. He, he would have been an engineer mm-hmm. if he didn't become a, a spiritual engineer yeah (laughs) and uh so he made like a four into one exhaust manifold for his volkswagen beetle right like just crazy stuff right yeah Yeah. so i have no mechanical ability but observing and working alongside those guys yeah and seeing them solve problems that um didn't look like they had much of a solution right just made me fearless in yeah. that sense. Yeah. And so all of that serves me as an artist so much. Right. Um, and as a teacher. Yeah. And I think it's obvious that my dad being a minister um, has led me down the road of teaching. Yeah. 
and I, I had no desire to be a minister. Uh, I had too many uh, times where he was not home, yeah. and dinners were interrupted, and you know, a lot of families were being served. Yeah, it's definitely not something where you can have too many off days at work without right. <laughs> big consequence. But yeah. um, but the relationship aspect, the relational yeah. aspect, was really meaningful and just became yeah. instinctive. Right. Um, and I'll be honest until probably my fifth or sixth year of teaching, I really didn't, I didn't know if that's what I wanted to do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I gave myself to it Yeah. and I, I didn't want to shortchange anybody. Right. But every time I'd go to a teacher conference <laughs> or an in-service of some kind, right. I would come home and just look at my wife and be like, I don't think I'm a teacher. Right. I just yeah. don't think I'm a teacher. Right. I'm not. I don't get excited about the things people get excited about. Right. right. I, I love my students, but I don't yeah. miss them when I'm out of the classroom. Like, I don't know what to yeah. say. Yeah. This is so weird. Yeah. And finally, it, it just came to the point of realizing, like, it's that thing I mentioned before. It's just being a man of two lands. Yeah. You're not really this thing, but you're not really that thing. Yeah. Because you get to do all the things. Yeah. yeah. And there's a beauty in that, but you just have to wait to learn and, and trust it. Right. Did you, um, Micah, I'm just curious. I mean, I've, I've always felt Hoban does a great job of accepting all kids um, with welcome with welcoming arms. And, you know, I, I feel like most people can find a niche at Hoban and, and feel loved and accepted. Um, you, you, you called yourself a weirdo, so I, I don't like to use that word. But you said at, at Conneaut, you guys were a little bit different in what your interests were. Were you accepted there yeah. for that? Did you feel accepted? No. Uh-uh. <laughs> no. <laughs> Um, no, <laughs> my buddy Jim and I were the fags. Um, we were our only, you know, we were the two friends. Okay. And so, uh, and I had other friends, but he and I were really tight. Okay. And, uh, I, it was constant walking down the hallway. Wow. You know, whatever slur you could think of. Really? And again, that, that kind of bolstered, um, my stubbornness. Yeah. Being like, all right, well, let's see what I can show up in tomorrow to step it up, you know, and, and <laughs> right. push the buttons. Right. He and I had gym classes or in the days of gym class where you had to take a shower Yeah. after gym. I was mortified in eighth grade. Yeah. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to high school. Right. I have little scrawny me. Yeah. I got to be in a in a jail shower with these right. high school kids. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to survive this. Right. And so, sure enough, first couple days, we... um. You know, we're getting pushed around and made fun of by the other kids. And so Jim, who I'd really just kind of bonded with pretty quickly, <laughs> he and I took up to singing, You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman in the showers. <laughs> and it meant that we got all the hot water. <laughs> and then we yeah. They left us alone. Oh, man. Hey, that is so, a good song, though. I will have to say, <laughs> it's a you good know, song. it's got a great rhythm to it. You can really lather it yeah. up. Yeah. But, um,. <laughs> So, no, it was not. It was a school very much like a classic yeah. after-school special right. click, you know, right. docs, cheerleaders, nerds, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, but those things have a distinct way. If you're willing, if you survive that stuff yeah. and, and you don't get too hardened or, or angry, right. it does have a real tenderizing effect. Yeah. Um, if you end up being a teacher yeah, uh, right. or in a trade like that because um, – you can look to that kid and be like, yeah. Oh, I, I know what that's like. Right. 
I know what it right. feels like to not be accepted. And you're you're safe here. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Yeah. I got you. And uh so that's got to you know, um that's got to shape you um into who you are today uh, in addition to your father and mother. Um would you agree? Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um now I listen, in 1991 as a freshman you know, there were some hard times for sure in high school, but I went home every day yeah. to an amazing house Yeah, yeah. Um, with two parents that loved me. Yeah. My dad, very nurturing. My mom, very nurturing, but also very hard. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. get up. Yeah. You're fine. You right, know? right. And I really needed that. I needed that. Um, my sister, six years older than me, yeah. just blazed a trail um, right. as a person that, super super intelligent and driven yeah. but also really into countercultural things yeah and you know pre-internet and pre all that stuff yeah the only way you were going to learn about cool things was either through a friend or an older sibling right hmm. and i just lucked out yeah. that those people weren't bringing bad influences into my life exactly yeah um i had one guy in in my senior year that asked me if i wanted to go drop acid with him <laughs> ben krieg Wow. And I was like, I don't know. And I looked like a person that would do that, yeah. you know, in high yeah. school. Right. And so uh, I was like, eh, I, yeah. what's that like? And yeah. I was like, I don't know. I was, I was at the truck stop, <laughs> and I, I looked, and the clock said it was 7 p.m., and I looked again, and it was like 1 a.m. I was like, wow. <laughs> it's kind of like teaching. Kind of like teaching. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm like, I'm not sure yeah. what the good part there is. Right, like, right. <laughs> wow. I guess my point of saying all that is I didn't have people badgering me online. Yeah. I didn't, you know, have the pressure of representing myself in a yeah. virtual realm. Right. And it wasn't easy to get a hold of drugs or anything like that. Correct. So, yeah. I could be as weird as I wanted, and the worst thing I was going to feel was to be pushed around the hallway a little bit, yeah. called some names, and intimidated. Yeah. And those were not great things, yeah. you know. But it ended at three p.m. when I went home. Yeah. Yeah. And I was surrounded by love. Yeah. So, I've got I've got to imagine that that has made you an extremely strong person, um, and maybe that's where your internal locus of control comes from today, with the way that you can withstand the adversity. Uh, of teaching um, and and never lose it. So that's an amazing, um, but but not 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 a good fact, but an amazing set of circumstances that you have grown through, Micah. Um, I'm, I'm curious though. It, it makes me ponder as we kind of explore sports and coaching here. Is there a little bit of a love hate relationship with with the stereotypical um, athletic world because of the fact that we do get notoriety from the general public? in a way and sometimes i don't know if, if we get it as much as people think we get it but sometimes we get funding too um s- supposedly we have to work for a lot of our own funding but we do get more funding perhaps than some other areas of a high school is there always that little bit of a love-hate relationship mike or where has your journey been with that with the world of athletics i'm a big sports fan um as a observer yeah um I just have never gotten caught up in that, frankly. I yeah. think it there is a tension between those things. There is, okay. And it's a, it's just a trope. Yeah. Um, people look for reasons to talk about why funding doesn't exist for certain things, and yeah, it's an easy thing to pick towards. Right. Um, 
I just don't think it has much of a foundation. Yeah. Honestly, um, sports are expensive to yeah. put on and therefore they need more funding. You know, it's, um, art is also expensive and right. unfortunately there's not a structure that provides funding to all schools for yeah. that. Yeah. I don't like that, but right. I don't think it's, it's, you know, the correlation is not causation. They're not okay. one or the other. Yeah. It's, um, and so again, I can only speak for Hoban, but <laughs> as I've corrected so many students or tried to over the years where they're just like, why doesn't, you know, Hoban support the arts? And I'm like, you've got to be crazy. Right. You've got to be crazy. Yeah. We have a budget, like yeah. period. We have one. Yeah. So yeah. most art teachers are buying everything out of pocket. Yeah. Okay. Um, we have school administrators that are trying to help our programs become stronger. Yeah. Sure. Maybe as a marketing tool. Yeah. That's okay. Right. Call it whatever you want. Right. You know, I don't care right. what your motives are. Yeah. It's going to help our kids. Right. So I, you know what, it's kind of that idea I talked about before of, I'm not a fan of cutting down other subjects in order to build yours up. Correct. Yeah. Why Hannah Schill? Okay. Yeah. yeah. There's a girl that, um, why would I ever not want that kid to be part of a basketball team or cross country or track? Absolutely. Yeah. How does that benefit the art department? Yeah. In her, her life? Yeah. Not at all. Right. Um, she blesses our art classes because of the discipline yeah. that she's received from those sports. Right. And she's a driven person herself, amazing family, all that. But yeah, yeah. that discipline and maturation that she's received from her athletic experience is now something I get to appreciate in the art room. Right. That benefits her, me, and my other students. Yeah. You know, that's we've lost that somewhere. Yeah. When people start those arguments, they've lost the idea of the um, that university right. notion of a school, of the universe that we all exist within. Yeah. If the moon gets more sunlight at certain times than other times, yeah. that's okay. It's just the orbit. Right. That's yeah. how it happens. Right. Okay, we're all within this this galaxy together. So yeah. it's uh, you have to advocate. you got to fight for what you need. Yeah. You can't be quiet about it. Yeah. But you can't blame other people for getting it. Right. That's, that's how that goes. It's not this, yeah, it's not an even trade-off. Yeah. Mike, I wanted to ask you a question about grading. You're an art teacher. And, and... <laughs> you know, I, I teach a pretty broad age range, so an experience range, so everywhere from 9 through 12. And um, so I'll just talk about the, like, the ninth graders or the intro-level kids. I think it's critical. I start with a, a pretty descriptive criteria list. Um, if I can do most of the grading, the point grading based on a criteria list, then that's my quantitative foundation. Mm -hmm. And I can find points there. Now that's for the student so that they can see where they hit or missed. But it's also for me because as like a, a former player that's now a coach, uh, it's really instinctive for me to be able to look at a project think about the kid's process over the couple of weeks and get a number. Right. I can do that pretty fast. Yeah. So in a desperate moment, I could go through a stack of projects pretty quickly and get all the numbers. Now, the only person or thing that serves is the grade book. You know, that fills some blank slots. <laughs> it doesn't teach the kid a thing. Right. And it doesn't tell them anything. So mm -hmm. uh, that's really hard for me to, again, in those busy moments, to not just be like, bang, 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 bang. <laughs> Got it. Right. Done. Okay, right. cool. Next. Yeah. 
Um, so, and I'm not always successful in that. You know, I definitely have fallen to that in desperate times. Um, so, but if I start with the list of criteria, I can go through that and start to check it off and put some numbers down. Usually jot a couple of comments of like, here's where you didn't get it, or man, here's where you hit it out of the park. And those are usually very um, tangible aspects of a project, not really speaking to the things, Scott, that you were talking about, the heart and soul of it, and really the intention of the student. For that, um, I hope that along the way, we've had enough conversations uh, that I have a sense of what it is they're trying to accomplish, and I've been able to guide them a little bit in that process. Um, so that as I'm grading it, I can give some real thought to it. Um, it is definitely hard when I'm giving a grade that I know is going to be lower than what the kid expects and, uh, and the disappointment that's going to come with that. But, you know, just to be perfectly honest with you, um, much like my hardship in high school at times uh, formed me, I think that's something that our kids in this generation are lacking uh -huh. is some of those hard moments and and heck maybe if they look in the the grade book and they see that they got a c on that project where they thought they'd aced it and they come to me hot and heavy about it and that's a chance for us to talk to each other and um and reinforce it and it might mean i revise the grade right uh -huh. maybe i see something i missed yeah but also maybe it's a chance for them to learn how to vocalize for themselves yeah to have an adult conversation and deal with the pain of disappointment. Right. Right. Nobody ever died of that. Yeah. You know, those are really good things. It makes the rope a lot stronger. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and I would never set out to do that. I, I certainly am not going to grade someone's project and be like, this kid needs a growth moment. <laughs> Just chop him down at the <laughs> right. knees. Right. Um, but I think with all of that, and tell me from your perspective, if I'm off base on this, but I found part of this, uh, one of the strategies to survival as a teacher is purposeful detachment. Yeah. Intentional detachment. Yeah. Sometimes that happens, actually, a lot of times that happens when I'm grading. Yeah. Where I, I step way back and I just say, this is not me. This is not me on paper. Right. In fact, if this is a, a, the most amazing project that was ever made at Hoban High School, mm -hmm. that probably has very little to do with me. Right. I, I was the bumper bowling. I just kept him within the lanes. Yeah. Gave him an environment to work. Also, if this is an incomplete project, the student didn't finish, they bombed it, whatever, that probably isn't me. Mm -hmm. And so I don't need to feel hurt about this. Yeah. And I think I have to put special emphasis on that because... I tend to be more of an empathy-driven person, and so my roller coaster would be way off the tracks if I lived and died with every project. Mm -hmm. You know, if I was much more analytical, I think I'd have to push myself to be more emotionally connected. So, right. if anything, I got to pull myself back. Yeah, just be like, Mike, grade this stuff, give them some feedback, and know it's all going to be okay. That yeah. you created an environment where they can come back to you and talk if necessary. Right. But with the I just always want their grades to be legitimate and right. to not seem like it was based on Mr. Krause's good day or bad day. He yeah. likes me or he doesn't. Yeah. This is his style of art or it isn't. Right. Um, those are the bigger struggles I often have to deal with to get people to trust 
yeah. trust the grades. I think when you said healthy detachment there, Micah, I think that's so important for teachers and coaches. Um, yeah. in, the, in the athletic world, uh, the, as soon as you show up to a contest halfway through the season, you've got a lot of enemies in the stands because something's not going right for their child. For instance, maybe they're not starting, they're not playing, they're not getting enough shots. And you, you kind of make these accidental enemies. Um, and then within the team itself, you can't sit there. And if you're a people pleaser naturally, like I kind of am, um, you can't try to please everybody that night or you're going to lose because, A, it's impossible to please everybody. Yeah. Um, so I have to have a healthy detachment um, in order to just survive emotionally. And then in addition, in the classroom, I've often told kids, even when they're peer editing, that I want them to pretend that their sister Gertrude, and, and, and she was a, a fair but pretty pretty uh, high standard teacher I had in fifth grade or whatever. I make it up every year. Maybe she was eighth grade last year. <laughs> and and I, when they peer edit this paper, I want them to be in the persona of Sister Gertrude. They're, you're not you. You're Sister Gertrude. And that gives them that safe space to actually peer edit a paper um, authentically because they're, they're not scared to upset their buddy. Um, and in the same way, we, we as a teacher sometimes need to be Sister Gertrude because we don't want to upset our buddy um, who, you know, thinks they're doing great, but really, you know, needs to do much better with their fluidity and, and their and their style. Scott? Exactly. Yeah, I like, I like what both of you said, and I think that healthy detachment is so necessary. So I'll just use coaching as an example. We don't make it so much about us. You know, there comes a game if our team plays well and we're not in a healthy way detached, we take maybe too much responsibility for that. And then vice versa, if our team isn't playing well, we take that too personally. And um, so I, I, I definitely agree with you. Um, it, it, that, that healthy detachment is necessary for our survival, but also our perspective. Yeah, that's right. That's a good way to put it for the perspective. It's just um, teaching and, and coaching is very humbling. <laughs> and through that humility comes growth. Mm-hmm. But I think some people swerve. It's really easy to swerve to the other end, too. Mm-hmm. And to be like, you know, a, um, a godlike figure. Like, right. I control this. Yeah. And what happens in this space is because of the resources I provide. Right. And um, yikes. Yeah. I, that. That always puts me off. I, I do yeah. have a few people that I've worked closely with that um, whenever a, a student has a growth moment, mm-hmm. um, it's often, when it's described to me, it's, it's prefaced with, because I had this conversation with, or because I did this, yeah. this student did this. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. I hope so. And I'm glad right. you did those things. But right. There's no way it's that simple. No. Because 99 times we say those things and nothing happens. Right. Right. You know, until much later. So there's a lot of factors that go into things, and that's why it takes all of us. But I don't want the pressure of being the god of the situation. I, right. I can't live under that. Yeah. And, uh, and, and also, I don't know. I, I just think a teacher should be a mature enough person that you don't need mm-hmm. that kind of credit to survive. Yeah. And it's not going to come often, right? you know, um, so you've got to be like the camel, you know, just yeah. surviving with a little bit of water each day. <laughs> and, uh, and when you come to the oasis, you're just like, let's jump in. You <laughs> <Yeah>. know? <laughs> this is great. Yeah, Micah, the image that I thought of when you were talking was the idea of 
the conductor of a symphony being able to turn his or her back yeah. on the orchestra and just let them be part of the show. I, I teach at Wadsworth High School and during my 30 years, we've had just three amazing band directors. And my favorite assembly of the year, every year is our fine arts assembly. And I love the jazz band. I love jazz music. I love our jazz band. And um, they always play two songs. And my favorite moment is our band director will always get them started, but then he or she will walk away. And it's just the kids. And it's, it's, it's giving kids that sort of ownership and having enough confidence as a teacher or coach to know when they fail, it's not my fault all the time. And when they succeed, it's not because of me all the time. Scott, that's so funny that you brought up the conductor um, because I was going there. Um, I was going with the conductor and the maestro. Um, but, it, but, but, it, I, and I really was. Um, I know some people like to uh you know bandwagon on, on on things like that but i was and i was just thinking if you don't have the the first chair and the second chair you know violinist um where the true talent's coming from you know how much effect does the conductor have and the conductor does the conductor is certainly a part of it but they're just a small part of it so mike i want to switch gears a little bit because a lot of times in athletics um and i know for me growing up i i guess in in a way it was an escape um, athletics was, um, and I just spent so much time out in the driveway or at the park or, or running around uh, Stowe, uh, Ohio, you know, shooting a basketball or dribbling a basketball, and, and, and it was a nice escape and a little bit, I guess, of a catharsis for some uh, athletics can be. Um, but in, in, in a similar vein, I, I kind of see art um, that way too. Do, do you see that with some of your students who fall in love with it? Yeah, it's it's their escape. It's It's their um their time of peace um i think much like a a sport art for those kids is compelling because um it's it's very frustrating or or uh it seems like the next achievement is just out of reach but Mm -hmm. it's really exciting to pursue Mm -hmm. and and that excitement and then the gratification of the final work Mm-hmm. Um, is is something that keeps them really engaged. Yeah. Um, it's it's within their control. Yeah. You know, uh, as a kid, it's easy to forget when you become an adult that as a kid you have very little control over much. Yeah. And so the ability to have this thing that just you are making and you're right. making all the decisions about it. Yeah. Is is hyper unique. Yeah. So definitely, um, yeah, a lot of our kids find their their safety and their peace and gratification through art making yeah um mike i I was reading an article um about you and a couple different things i want to dig into in that article but one thing that was in there it it, you you said that i really love the development of a project but i don't have an interest in making it my life i want to build something and move on from it and when i read that it, it kind of reminded me of coaching um not only the cyclical journey of a season what like when that season ends, it's almost like a lifetime uh, in a way, or or a uh, some sort. Yeah, I guess some sort of lifetime ha- has ended with that group of kids. 
but oftentimes coaches will then move on from a team to another school or, or kind of just know it's time to okay to detach from that process and maybe start another one. I just want to dig into a little bit. What, what did you mean? And, and do you see a connection there? I want to build something and move on from it. And you said, I, I don't want to make it my life, but in a way I do see it as your life, but you're talking specifically about a project, not art itself, just a project. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the the career trajectory for an artist to be be able to make it into a career is to um, choose a medium, master that medium, and even narrow your your focus down to a concept. Okay. And pursue that concept to the nth degree, yeah. maybe throughout the rest of your life. Yeah. Um, I don't think that's always a conscious decision, but I think in some cases it is. Like this is who I am and this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. And through that consistency, people are able to say, TK, he's a sculptor. He makes things out of found materials um, and he grew up in a post-industrial town. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Boom. It's a clean box. Yeah. And so we have a show coming up where we're doing post-industrial sculpture mm -hmm. um, reflecting on that time period in the United States Midwest. Right. Let's call TK. He's yeah. got that work. So that's a really clean way to work, and right. it's very helpful to be known and successful. Yeah. Um, not by choice. That's just not who I am, unfortunately. <laughs> right. <laughs> so um, now part of my freedom in that is that I have a full-time job. Right. And um, it's funny. My mom, when I was growing up, would always you know, I'd torn between, do I want to be an artist, a teacher? What do I want to do? And Right. And she said something about, uh, you know, um, why would you want to ruin the thing you love by making it your job? Right. Okay. So I held on to that for a long time. <laughs> and then Brother Ken, our former president at Hoban, told me a story. I forget what the context of this was, but it's when he was, before he was at Hoban, another school, and one of his students uh, just off the cuff was like, man, I want to be a porn star. You know, I just, that looks so cool. And you just yeah. get, to, get to have sex all the time. Right. And another student said, yeah, but if you work at McDonald's, you don't want to eat hamburgers anymore. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's exactly what my mom told me. Just right. completely different wording. Right. <laughs> so I share that with you. But um, now my mind has changed on that. Yeah. I, I love hamburgers. But right. I... Uh, <laughs> As long as um, they're not from the rainforest. Right. <laughs> Just responsible ones. Yep. No, but uh, so I guess my whole point there is that because I have a job that I love and and helps us have a you know easy lifestyle financially, um, I can take all the chances I want as an artist. And if they if nobody wants to see the work That'll be a bummer, but it's not going to mean it, we, we can still buy groceries, you right, know. Right. Um, using that has, uh, as, as soon as I started to realize that, that's when I kind of had that, that clarity about um, that I'm not a person that wants to spend the rest of my life in one process. Right. I like to screen print. I don't want to do that for the rest of my life. Yeah. As the only thing. Right. I love photography. Yeah. But not as an end, yeah. end to the goal. Right. Um, so all these things, the skills yeah. I've had a chance to develop over time, yeah, I like seeing how they come together. Right, right. And 
in, in ways where I get to use the tools the wrong way. Yeah. In, yeah. in ways that are maybe five degrees different than somebody else would. Right. And it's not even intentional. It's just, yeah. again, I'm dyslexic and I, right. I, my brain works in a different way. And so yeah. I can't do the things the way right. they're supposed to be. Right. And it takes longer, but it means it's probably going to end up at least different. Yeah. Maybe not better, but right. different. My, um, yeah. And so that's, that's kind of what I was trying to articulate in that, um, yeah. in that quote was that I just don't have any interest in being yeah. that guy right. for the duration of my career because yeah. any work that I've seen like that, it's so rare right? that I, it's so rare that I continue to care about that artist's work yeah. throughout yeah. the journey. Right. You ever think of that or hear of that idea that like, um, especially with academic writing, mm-hmm. read the first book. Yeah. Don't worry about the rest. You're yeah. just trying to get the like, capture the dragon again. Yeah, exactly. It's like all the magic's in that first book. It's right, like an album right. from a band. Yeah. That first album, they've crushed those songs. Yep. And they played them for years and then finally recorded them. Yeah. It's hard to get that again. They get caught in that trap. Micah, um, to me, that that's all about experimentation and, and kind of diversifying and, 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 wanting to start new 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 things and and there, there's a personality type on the myers-briggs that i believe is an enfp or an infp and i'm not sure if you've taken the myers-briggs test but a long time. um enfps and, and infps they they love to start new projects um and they're idea people they don't they don't always finish every project but they love to start right. new projects okay <laughs> um yeah. and I, i'm curious because a, as a coach um, I, I tend to be like that a little bit. Like, I don't want to do the exact same thing every season. In fact, I don't want to do the exact same thing every day in practice. And so, and so therefore, um, I feel like it's a strength, but I also feel like it's a huge weakness in my, in my coaching world that I'll, I'll just keep making up new things every day. And sometimes it throws the kids off a little bit because I like, I like change and I like that new, that newness. I'm curious, have you brought that experimentation um concept in your art world as your as you, in your world as an art professional to the classroom like do you experiment with different methodologies in the classroom and kind of mix things up over your 15 or 20 years um in at hoban you know definitely so yes um i think my biggest uh goal with kids is to get them to trust experimentation mm-hmm um, when there's not a, it's not a recipe where we know we're going to get chocolate chip cookies that are delicious. <laughs> right. Uh, they are terrified. Yeah. They're terrified. And that reassuring, like, no, no, listen, you've already got the points. Yeah. This, that's done. Right. I already put them in the book. Right. Let's just take these things and see what happens. Bro. Yeah. And, you know, maybe it's nothing. Yeah. Maybe we come up with something here. Right. Um, that is so hard to convince them of. And um, so where I bring the experimentation a little more into class is uh, combining materials together that they may not have expected. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, things that maybe they've done a color pencil project before and they've done a watercolor project before Mm -hmm. and then be able to say, okay, guys, now how do those two things work together? How do we bring them together? Yeah. And maybe you've had the same experience or hold up with changing things up in the coaching realm it's just far more consequential yeah. when other people are involved, yeah. especially um, young young people. Yeah. So in my own studio, the consequence is if I do something unexpected for a client, yeah. 
for a gallery show, it could just go wrong. Yeah. And they may not like it. Right. Now, the only person that really hurts is me and the client. Yeah. And they have to find somebody else to do the work. Right. And, you know, I, my ego gets dinged. Yeah. Um, but I can move on beyond that pretty quickly. Right. It's much scarier for me to walk into a classroom of 30 some kids. Right. And, and just say, Hey, we're taking a left turn today. Right. And, uh, and I have to admit that does make me nervous. Yeah. That does make me really nervous. And that's where I start to get very tight. Yeah. And I want the, I want the timeline to work correctly. Right. I want the outcome to be correct. Okay. And, um, so I, I get really tight in the classroom actually. Okay. okay. Um, now that is, uh, that's good because with our introductory kids, yeah. uh, a lot of times that helps them go down the path of discovering they can do something that is aesthetically beyond what they thought was possible. Right. Where it goes wrong, I think is obvious is that it, it creates boundaries, um, that, that limits discovery and right. ownership quite often. Right. So if I hear what you're saying, Micah, the art of teaching and coaching is giving uh, or providing enough structure in your setting so that kids feel safe, um, but also they have enough room to be creative and aren't afraid to make mistakes. You got and it. That's really, really tough to do. Um Hey, we we didn't have to do this podcast, guys. <laughs> that was it right there, Scott. And done. Yep. Well, no, I just love how I mean that that's what you're that's what you're preaching, and it makes so much sense to me. That's what we're trying to do as teachers and coaches is um, is that balancing act. It's like you're walking a tightrope, and sometimes you want to reach out and pull them back on the rope. You don't want to want your right. students to get too far out. But really, for them to achieve at the highest level, they're going to have to stumble and fall a little bit. Yeah, if we, you know, just stuck with ISO basketball from the early 2000s, late 90s, like Allen Iverson style, <laughs> that's saying you're hyper talented. These other four guys are not as talented. <laughs> they're going to get over there. Right. You go over there and make the magic happen. Right, right. And that can only ever be so successful. Uh That's kind of like no offensive plan. You just make it up as you go. And for students, my first year of teaching, I had these ideas that I wanted to come in and with my upper level kids, I'm going to give them time. And because they are, because they care about art as much as I do, they're going to fill that time and do things that are so unexpected. Right. And they did. Yeah. The time was full of them not doing work, and that was <laughs> right. really unexpected to right, me. Right. Yeah. And I remember that summer just being like, "Okay, we need some distinct boundaries." Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and that's that's just it. When you create create when you provide creative boundaries, and this this is from the age of five through the age of ninety five. Mm-hmm. People are so much more interesting when they have boundaries. Right. George Lucas made amazing movies in the mid seventies because he had no budget because CGI didn't exist and everything had to be made out of model plane glue and, and whatever they could scrub together. Mm-hmm. And they created a whole world that people still hold on to today. Right. The movies since then 
are not as successful. And I think a big part of that is there are no limits. Right. He's George Lucas. Yeah. He can do whatever he wants. No one says no. Yeah. He has all the digital capabilities in the world to invent whatever he wants. Right. But there's a reason that those movies that where you start to see the guidelines and you start to see the little flaws, the reason those things resonate with us in a different way is because they're tactile, because there's a human touch. Mm-hmm. And we can relate to that. Yeah. We see people breaking through the boundaries and or at least attempting to. Yeah. Um, and we can relate to it. We can't right. relate to an algorithm or a computer code in the same way. And I think artistically, um, if you say to a student, here are your limitations, uh, what can you do within those limitations? Mm-hmm. Yes, a lot of the kids are going to do really conventional things. Yeah. But a really highly creative kid is going to take those boundaries and say, okay, how do I sneak through the cracks in the walls? Where do I find the weak points and take advantage of that? I tell that to the students all the time. Guys, I'm an art teacher. I am not an engineering teacher. I want you to take my lesson plan, blow it apart, yeah. and convince me why your way is better. Yeah. If you can do that, if you walk in with something that is totally different than what I asked you to do, yeah. you can convince me why it's a better way to do it, yeah. you just aced it, man. Right. You don't even need to do anything the rest of the semester. Right. You've owned it. Yeah. Um, and that's, I think that's the crux right there is... Um, and, it, you know, there are plenty of boundaries all through life, right. and we have to find our way to navigate through those things. So it's life lessons, but also if you're going to pursue a creative life, you're always going to have limitations mm-hmm. on what it is you can do. Usually money, time, yeah. always. Yeah. Um, rarely your imagination. That's rarely the limit. So somehow you have to take that really big amorphous imagination thing yeah. and use it to solve those much more tangible in difficult problems of money, time, friendships, relationships, all those things that stop you from making stuff. Yeah. Right. But the more creative you get with that, the more interesting it is to people, other people to see. Right. Um, and often they're compelled to care about it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, nobody cares about watching practice Yeah. because there are no, there's not a clock that goes three, two, one, bzzz, Right. You know, and a ball that goes up and clanks off the rim and goes in or not. Yeah. We get excited because there's a clock. Yeah. And there's a scoreboard. Right. And there are right. rules. Yeah. And a rectangle you got to stay within. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the boundaries that make it super exciting. Right. You know, the all-star game is not exciting for the NBA. Yeah. Exactly. It's got a lot of those same things, but there's, yeah. it's lacking the, the real intensity of the pressure element. So, yeah. Um, I think if we can get kids to embrace the boundaries and what you said, Scott is critical is feeling safe within those boundaries and safe to push on them mm-hmm. um, without a collapsing on them. Right. Then you've got, you know, the only limitation at that point is the, the student's desire to learn. Right. Right. Micah, um, in that same article that I mentioned before um, you, you mentioned about your inspiration and your allure of abandoned structures Um, and that that has been a theme in much of your work. But I like what you said about it. You said, I've been drawn to decrepit spaces and the quiet dignity they have as they begin to fall apart. Um, But when you said quiet dignity there, um, I kind of saw it as a a little bit, maybe do you see a part of yourself in those? Not that you're falling apart, but (laughs) the, the, the quiet dignity part. 
Um, I've always just seen you as somebody that has a lot of quiet dignity. And I'm just wondering, is that a little bit of a reflection in who your dad was um, and who you had to be in high school uh, as you kind of had to um, keep keep it all in when, when people were mocking you and whatnot for being such an art lover or being a little bit different? Um, I'm just wondering how that, that abandoned structure might connect a little bit more symbolically. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, thanks for thanks for reading that article and for asking about these things. Um, yeah, you know, I don't know. I, I haven't reflected upon myself enough to know that connection. Um, mm-hmm. As much as I love to make art, mm-hmm. I have a really hard time articulating why it is I make things I do. Yeah. So the the writing of artist statements is exceptionally difficult for right. me. Um, because I, I feel like I'm beating a, a dead horse at that point. Like I already made it. Why do I? Yeah. How do I put this into words? Yeah, I do understand the the need for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I did spend a lot of time trying to find the right way to say that. Yeah, and here's where that comes from. Our culture is so quick to dismiss and ignore things that are not pristine. Yeah, and are not the. Um, highest level of beauty whatever that may be and and yet we're surrounded by things that nature is overtaking and that are falling apart and and that are just part of that entropy humans for instance we go to a place where i find it interesting that in 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 movies their harrison ford is like a silver fox (laughs) but uh judy dench just looks like an old woman. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there's something about a man in our culture yeah. that we see them as becoming more handsome and dignified as they get older. Right. And a woman, the, our females are not represented in that way. Right. And I think that's just a small example of what also happens architecturally mm-hmm. around us. Right. Uh, let me reverse that. I think architecture and, and yeah. things around us that get torn down are a small example of a systemic yeah. problem. Right that affects how we perceive humans as well. Yeah. And in Akron, we've been tearing buildings down nonstop, sometimes mm-hmm. necessarily, sometimes just because. Right. And um, I feel more personally comfortable around something that has flaking paint, tarnished metal, mm-hmm. that has shown some weather and wear, Yeah. than I do something that is a Las Vegas strip mall. Right. Because it's, it goes back to the film thing. Yeah. There's no humanity in that. Right. There's a lot of humanity in seeing layers of paint that somebody put on their shingles year after year. And it's, hey, the weather's not going to stop. It's going to keep flaking off of there. Yeah. But you got to keep trying to fight that fight. Right. There's just a beauty in that. And the first time I ever felt it was I was in New York City and I was walking down the subway stairs. And I, I touched the railing, which in the time of COVID, I can't even imagine. <laughs> uh, touched that railing, and I looked over at the wall next to the railing, and right at shoulder height, all the paint had been scraped off mm-hmm. all the way down the stairwell. And it was from tens of thousands of people every single day walking up and down the stairs, rubbing their shoulder in the same spot. Hmm. That can only happen through time. That's a dignified mark to me. That's a beautiful mark. To me, it's just like a, a water carving the Grand Canyon. Right. 
you know, it took a lot of time, a lot of consistency and dignity. Yeah. And to just patch that over with new paint or tear it down because it's, it's blighted disregards that dignity yeah. and the time. And so in my art, I desire to make those things permanent, to, to snapshot them in a way that they exist now, not as something to be discarded, but as something to be admired and something yeah. to be looked upon and understood. Right. Whether that's a person, a building or whatever it may be. Yeah. Scott? Mike, Micah, how, how do you educate someone who doesn't see what you see as an artist? Or do you even worry about it? Like, is a coach oftentimes um, going back to this idea of having critics nonstop who, you know, it's easy as a coach to say, well, they're not at practice. They don't understand the game. They don't see what I see. Mm -hmm. And the, the struggle is, do I worry about that? can I compartmentalize that or do I try to educate them or does it even matter? Um, you know, for, if I'm honest with you, art in school is not about training people to be artists. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's a good thing because if it was, we only have 10% of our graduates from Hoban that pursue some form of art. Okay, so that would mean that I've failed to communicate to 90% of our kids. They're leaving with very little. I think art education in schools is about um, creative development, creative problem solving. It's about material handling. There's a lot of things that it's about. But that does, you can, I don't know how to say this exactly. All of those things do not equal being an artist. Right. And that's not a elitist thing that I'm trying to say there, because I don't think being an artist is the end all be all, you know, and, and sometimes I get caught up in discussions, intense discussions with students about you know, Bob Ross has, has always been a topic of conversation and he's had a resurgence over the past few years. And so um, students will inevitably ask what I think about his stuff. And I'm like, you know, it, that's cool. I'm glad yeah. that you find happiness in that. Right. It's not art, you know, yeah. but it doesn't matter. <laughs> right. It doesn't matter. What? I can't believe you'd say yeah. that. It looks yeah. just like a forest. Right. Like, I get that. <laughs> I get it. But it lacks the element that is art. Right. And and that's not always something that is easy to define yeah. or articulate. Um, but that doesn't, that's okay. It's okay. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and so I guess my, my point there is that I don't expect someone that's 14 to 18 years old to understand the world, to understand art or right. that realm in the same way that I do. It may happen over time and they very likely will have insights about it that I, I have not had. Um, but it does take time to develop that knowledge. and. I think where I get most frustrated, and this probably goes back to your coaching experience as well, is when people are asking questions or challenging you, not for the reason of learning, but just to antagonize and to d distract. Yeah. Right. Those are moments that I get really frustrated and I, I end the conversation because right. that's not interesting right. or useful. Yeah. A student that truly wants to know why they have to take art class and what this crap is all about, right. I will engage all day long. Yeah, because 
that question is also a desire. Yeah. Um, and you can sniff that stuff out pretty quickly, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know what? Uh, I think our students right now in this online environment, this is the most authentic art education that they could have because they are alone at home figuring out how to do stuff with yeah. minimal instruction. Right. That's what art is. Otherwise, when we're in class, it is instructional time that happens to involve art materials yeah. where there's going to be a visual outcome. Right. Sometimes it ends up being an artistic achievement, yeah. especially for our upper level kids that are off on their own working independently. But usually it's, it's a process. It's, you know, like a recipe. We're going through a recipe together right. and yours ends up being a little unique because you made it. Yeah. You know, I don't care if we call it art or something else. It's not the point of what we're trying to do. Yeah. Um, I do. My pet peeve is when, you know, we start talking about specific works of art and kids want to dismiss it. And my eight year old sister could do that and blah, blah, blah. Right. Those are things where I do have to like take a deep <laughs> breath and just be like, maybe right. one less cup of coffee this yeah. morning. I know we're getting, what we're talking about today. Right. I right. get charged up. Yeah. Uh, Cause I take it very personally, but um, you know, those are just those, uh, those, those hot, hotly contested right. debates. Yeah. Micah, you know, you started off by, by talking about like the moments that, that, uh, you feel a shine um, as a teacher in this podcast today, um, and it, it, it kind of makes me reflect on Stephen King's book, The Shining, which which wasn't necessarily the same kind of shine, but it was uh, because The Shining was almost like an extra uh, sensory power um, that the main character in that novel kind of had, based on some other things. So it, it, it's a loose connection. But when when you feel that shine as a teacher, is what I'm referring to, I guess. Um, it's, it's kind of a really special moment because to me it occurs when sometimes another teacher or more, more, more often a, a student will kind of give you a little bit of love back um, in some way, shape, or form. And it's something that always sticks with you, but it re-inspires you. Um, and I could tell you a, a story, but a girl a, a year or two ago uh, did a project that was kind of like an ode to some things that we had done that year. Um, and, and she kind of linked them to a novel uh, that she studied on behalf of the class, and, and it was pretty cool. I still go back and read that occasionally just to re-inspire myself, but it was it was given to me in the form of a project but also of a writing. Um, and awesome. w- when you when you reflect on your own moments where, where not only do you shine because you're doing well, but maybe they reflect back on you, I'm just curious as we wrap this up, who are some of the people at Hoban, both students and fellow either administrators or teachers, that kind of helped you have some moments where you shined? That's that, det- that's that detachment piece. Well done. Yeah. Honestly, that was a really, test you passed. <laughs> I'm like, well, let me pull out my script. Yeah. Uh, no, I have a box of things that I keep that are just special notes or, you know, yeah. really kind hearted things that my favorite moments. Um, and I won't list any names because I, yeah, there are just so many people that have made my teaching career mean something. Yeah. Um, that would be remiss to leave anybody out. But the shine moments for me have come not in, typically not in the classroom during the, the flow of a class period. Right. It's the student that pokes their head into your door, uh, you know, five minutes after the bell rings um, or pops up to your room at seven before school starts, just kind of hanging around. And then you realize there's a real need there. <laughs> yeah. Um, those are things that 
I don't know. I just, in the moment, in the flow of those conversations, mm-hmm. I'm thinking in the back of my head, like, how did I get put in this situation? <laughs> Usually in a good way. Right. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, no, but why, why do I get to be lucky to be right. involved with this kid's life? Why yeah. do they trust me? Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's, uh, I don't know. Um, those are really, there's no way to articulate the feeling of a young person seeking you out, mm-hmm. opening their soul to you, and saying things to you that they've been terrified to say to a parent right. or to a friend or anybody else. And you just have to find the grace in the moment to know, try to know how to handle it. Right. Um, and often it's just sitting there and not saying anything stupid. Yeah. <laughs> just letting them talk. Don't yeah. screw it up. Right. Right. Those are real shine moments. And I would have never predicted this going into teaching, but right. a lot of those people I'm still dear friends with. Yeah. And obviously you don't get into the game for that. Right. I'm so thankful for it. Yeah. Um, it's an amazing gift that comes from teaching. Yeah. Uh, and that only comes through time. I think that's right. my, my thesis over the whole thing is it only comes through time. Right you got to do things for a long time. Yeah. That's why I see dignity in yeah. old things. Yeah. Because it takes that much time to get meaning. You can't right. dip in and dip out. Right. You got to commit to something. Yeah. Um and in terms of my fellow my colleagues at Hoban, I think it's crazy that I get to go to a, a place every day or I used to walk into a place. Now now I zoom yeah. every day with um with other adults that you know, we're all on a spectrum of our lives and commitments mm-hmm. and distractions and all that stuff. But right. as a group, it's just people that have chosen to take less money, yeah, to work hard in a different way yeah. than at other schools. You know, it's not a comparison; it's just a different environment, right? Um, and engage on a daily basis, trying to push a little further every day. And a lot of those people are like deeply, deeply invested in their subject area. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's like being at a college. Right. But without a lot of the political crap. Yeah. You know, and with the spiritual yeah. thread running through the whole thing. Right. Um, that's amazing. Yeah. And it's in, in hard moments, it's helped me become a better person through dealing with those hard moments and in, in really uplifting times. Mm-hmm. It's, Rebuttressed me and, and my energy. Yeah. Um, definitely Marianne, uh, you know, person that hired me. Yeah. Who I told during my interview, my second interview, when I was pretty sure I had the job. Micah, what do you, you know, what do you see your five year plan as? It's like, well, I, you know, teach for a couple of years and then probably go back and pursue my PhD to maybe go back to the college <laughs> level. <laughs> you don't tell no. a future employer that. Right, right. Survived that one. Right. But, uh, she is very hard yeah. to work for. Yeah. Very demanding and um, unrelenting in yeah. terms of work ethic. Right. And I owe so much to her. Yeah. For the love of work right. that I have. Right. And uh, I'm I'm very thankful that that's what I was raised under as a teacher. Yeah. Um, because it's allowed me to now have to try to find work life balance. Yeah. I would much rather go that direction. Yeah. Then begin with a lot of work life balance and then have to step it up. Yeah. In terms yeah. of work ethic. I think that's a much 
bigger challenge. Absolutely. Um, so she's, you know, there's a number of voices in my head, professors and, and people like that that left yeah. a big mark. Yeah. She's a voice in my head that when I'm ready right. to stop on something, right. I, I push a little further because yeah. I know that she would be disappointed if I stopped early. Right. And I think when we find those people that we don't want to disappoint, we've kind of found the, the ultimate teacher coach in our life. Um, yeah. And I think that's pretty cool that you said that. And, and I want to reflect on something you said. I, I used to be so jealous my first couple of years in teaching that that nobody really came in my room when the bell went off at the end of the day, you know. And and, and I just I kind of kept thinking like, what do I have to do? Do I need to be the cool teacher? Like, what do I need to do to be the person where kids come in my room after the after the bell? And now and now I'm to the point where I I sometimes think, gosh, I wish they wouldn't come in my room. You know, I just want to be alone. Um, but what I what I mean, and I don't really want to be alone. But what no, I mean, I what I mean by that is, when those kids do come in, and they're there for a reason, for a need, you're, you're right. That that's the ultimate experience of grace. Um, and one thing I've I've learned is you don't have to say anything, which is what right. you said. Matter of fact, say less and, and just <laughs> just, less. just just listen, because um, there's nothing yeah. that necessarily you can even say other than to listen. But that gift of belief is something that they must have felt in you, Micah, if they come to you. And it's kind of something that you said your father gave you um, as, 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 as a youngster. And also that, that gift of patience and a nurturer and, and next play philosophy is what we call it in sports, where even if something goes wrong, like, like somebody tries to steal your motorcycles in Nova Scotia, holy cow, that's crazy. That's in Nova Scotia. You're not like, you're not in Kentucky. You're not yeah. in West Virginia. You're in Nova Scotia. I can't even say Nova Scotia, right? And and yet he's just like, oh, no big deal. Let's go have a coffee. Let's go for a hike, son. I mean, that that is just the ultimate next play <laughs> philosophy, as we say. Yeah. So, Mike, I just want to wrap up with this. I'm sitting in my uh, Brook Point Studios here, which officially, ladies and gentlemen, is my mother, Penny, Dr. Penny Griffith's condo. And um, I'm looking at the walls, and my mom became an artist um, at, at around age 55, and everything in awesome. here is her sketches and drawings and paintings uh, on the walls in here. And, and it just, it, like, they, they mean so much uh, to her, but even to us. And we sometimes take them for granted, but they, they mean so much because they, they all just have some beauty to them. And it was a great way for her to, to cope with some things in her own life. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, I just, I don't want to, I, I don't want to um, end this episode w- w- without us, talking about what's going on right here currently. Like Akron U is thinking of cutting six of their 11 colleges today due, due to this coronavirus. And I know some school districts are going to start making some cuts if this financial crisis continues. And I, I guess it makes me want to um, just ask or uh, think about how the co-curriculars and the fine arts are such an essential part of life and wellness um, and how they transcend high school. They, they transcend age. Because um, you can be a writer who just gets started in their 70s. You can be an artist who gets started in their 80s. You know, um, and, and the importance of, of art education. Where does that fall in line with what we're, what, with what we're going through here in the coronavirus? And, and even exclusive of the coronavirus. How important is it for school districts to, to, to stay focused on the fine arts? What was the first thing that happened when we began our stay at home. People started to create online teaching opportunities. People started writing songs that were kind of fun mocking takes on popular other songs talking about the plight of being at stay at home. People started sewing their own masks. Mm -hmm. 
restaurants have pivoted into completely new business model. The amount of creativity that's happened in the past nine weeks mm -hmm. is stunning. Yeah. Breweries started making hand sanitizer. Like, boom, people pivoted yeah. because of creativity. And it blows my mind that we can be so short-sighted in education to say that, well, the first thing that's got to go then are the arts. Right. Because not only is it taking out it, it, it's not only taking out the thing that some of those kids come to school for. Right. They they eat all the rest to get to dessert. They yeah. want that. They got to have that thing. So they're going to survive everything else. Yeah. yeah. So those kids lose. Yeah. Then we've got the kids that don't even know that they have a creative ability. Right. Mm -hmm. And we take that away from them. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and then we remove that training that becomes the instinct for people when times get tough. Right. Art is, listen, if you go to a beautiful island, um, go to Cancun, you're not going to see any good art there. Mm -hmm. You know why? It's 75 to 80 degrees every day and it's beautiful. <laughs> There's no tension. Right. There's no plight. Yeah. Okay. It's, <laughs> if you're having a bad day, go swim. Yeah. It'll work itself out. Right. All right? right. The reason great art is made in Akron and Cleveland and Pittsburgh and Youngstown and all these crappy, crappy towns that have survived <laughs> a lot of stuff is because people have had to find a way to cope mm -hmm. and express themselves. The amount of amazing music that's come from Akron yeah. right. is staggering. Yeah. And it's not coincidental. It's because people were raised in this boilerplate of nothing and had to be like i guess i'll just make cool things myself you know right, right. so and and that's what happened with stay at home yeah we all get in the situation of nothingness yeah and so either you're going to binge netflix 15 hours a day right or you're going to start to acknowledge that creative urge yeah so when we just scrape that from the plate uh, in colleges and k through 12 um, it's it's the opposite direction. Yeah. That's the opposite direction we should be going. We should be right. shoving our chips into creativity and say, yeah. okay, we're in educational chaos right now. Yeah. We don't know what's going to work. Yeah. Let's look for the most creative, legitimate, yeah. but creative solutions. Because um, I distinctly believe that, especially high school, is learning how to learn. You're going to learn specific things in your content areas. That's important. But ultimately, you're going to forget a lot of that knowledge <laughs> right. by the time you reach our dusty old ages. Yeah. What you've learned, hopefully, is how to learn mm -hmm. because that's going to play out forever. Right. So that can happen in a zillion different ways. It can happen online. It can happen in person. Yeah. We've just invented a whole new educational system in the past nine weeks that we've been told is coming down the pike. We didn't know it was coming this way. Right. We reacted, it's not perfect, it's nowhere close, but it's yeah. happening. Why trash all of that opportunity for creativity and just pivot to now the most rote core things Right. so that we can pass a state test? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That blows my mind. Right. It blows my mind. Yeah. And I feel the same way in, when I'm in academic leadership meetings at, at Hoban, and I've been on in other meetings at uh, you know on the state level. Yeah. 
this battle for legitimacy and like yeah. climbing the pile to I need these kids and we need these kids yeah. and this course is most important and right. yeah, but it's going to undercut opportunity here. Well, it yeah. doesn't matter. We need. Yeah. What are you talking about? Right. What do you? T- it's so blind. Yeah. And um, and it's not because I think art is the most important thing. It's because it's an important thing. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, I don't know. So yeah, it's incredibly frustrating. And I, you know, I don't have a global perspective on the finances. All of that's very complicated. Yeah. Um, but I don't suspect it's quite as complicated as right. as those decisions would show. Yeah. Because um, you don't actually you don't need a lot mm-hmm. to have these programs survive. Yeah. You need a passionate teacher that feels supported. Yeah. You need space, and you need some really basic materials that often can be provided from community sources. Yeah. That can happen right. anywhere. Yeah. Micah, um, before we wrap up again, I'm sorry I'm saying that again, but you share your space with um, your wife, Kim, at Hoban, and also Jill Fortman. And I just want to speak to maybe what those two, uh, and I'm going to call them artists because I think all teachers are artists, but they're obviously perhaps artists as well because they teach art. I just want to just shed, shed a, a quick light on how they have added either perspective or nuggets to your teaching and coaching life. Yeah, and uh, Zach Fedor as well. I'm sorry. Uh, we I'm sorry. I forgot about Zach. <laughs> Zach stuck downstairs. Sorry, Zach. Zach <laughs> Fedor as well. Um, you know, and Ron and with, Ron Martin, by the way. I'm yeah, sorry. and Kyle Kelly. Yeah, yeah and Kyle. Whole yeah. Bunch of but definitely yeah. Jill, Kim, yeah. and Zach. I work closely with. Yeah. Um, I've worked with Jill for 15 years now. Wow. And I would say very similar to Marianne, Jill is very intense. Highly mm-hmm. integral, mm-hmm. has a deep sense of justice mm-hmm. and commitment. Yeah, and there's no work that's too hard. Yeah, and that that can be very stressful sometimes. Yeah, because sometimes you do just need to take a play off. Yeah, you know. Like yeah. This, um, but what uh, what I've learned from Jill is uh, it, it's it's stepped me up many times yeah. in terms of my standards, my expectations. Right. It's another voice in my head of, is this right? Yeah. Are we being fair to everyone? Mm-hmm. Are these kids represented the right way? Um, so, yeah. And, you know, I just, I can work arm in arm with her. We don't even have to speak to each other yeah. to know where we're at. We're, right. we're so symbiotic. Yeah. And then, Working with my wife for a long time, I I was concerned about that. I was yeah. Micah at school and I was right. Micah at home. Right. Personality is not that different between the two, except yeah. that one's my realm and yeah. one's a shared realm, right? Yeah. And so it took a little while to balance that out. But um, again, a problem solver, yeah. someone that can be given a, a box of wires and mm-hmm. figure out what it's supposed to do. Wow. And then make sure it works the right way. Yeah. She can solve any problem. Um, she is a hyper intense person and very blunt, but when she's around students, she's incredibly gentle yeah. and patient. And that's been really cool for me to see. Um, highly dependable. Yeah. And Zach is one of the most generous and compliant people that um, I've ever had a chance to work with. Again, super generous with his energy and time and is always willing to look at things from a number of angles to see how they could be better, yeah. um, how he could serve in those realms. 
and I don't know that I've ever heard him say no. It's wow. an incredible team. Yeah. Um, we we did the Enneagram assessment a few years ago, and we're kind of uh, across the spectrum, but in a way that fits together like this yeah. just supernatural jigsaw puzzle. Somebody right. assembled that on right. high that I, yeah. <laughs> you know, we're so lucky. Yeah. Um, and it's it's pretty neat, and yeah. I've learned a ton from those people uh, in terms of my own yeah. teaching practice, but just personality and, right. and their grace as well. Yeah. Well, lucky. Micah, I, I think um, I think along the way, you know, you have served as the as as the bumpers on the bowling lane for for not only them but all of your students as well. And you you can be the bumpers on my bowling lane any day. Um, <laughs> it's been a total joy. Thank Scott you. about modeling goodness. Yeah, you know, different people have done that for you, but that—that's what we're trying to do for other people, and you are a great example of that. So thanks, thanks so much, Scott. It's nice to finally be able to talk to you. Exactly, <laughs> and we've crossed paths a number of times, so I've yeah. really enjoyed it. So, ladies and gentlemen, um, Micah Krauss, resident artist here in the Greater Akron area. <laughs> I guess you could say resident artist at Hoban, but art teacher and somebody who has influenced so many lives, including many of my own children, uh, my own kids at home, but also the kids that I've had a chance to work with in the English classroom. He's a nurturer, he's a teacher, and he's a coach. Um, He's a very patient person, and he has a quiet dignity, the same quiet dignity that he finds in abandoned structures. Um, And he helps kids, uh, I guess, develop a lifelong passion of art in its many forms and varieties something that could be a catharsis for them later in life, something that could just be a brief hobby that they experiment with for a semester of their life, or something that could be a part of the process of a healthy life full of wellness, um, love, yeah, love and fulfillment. Um, If he ever had a chip on his shoulder, which he claims to have, he sure hides it well, so maybe he should be in the next play at Hoban too because he's quite the actor. (laughs) <laughs> but this is a this is a, a young man still who many kids trust. Uh, they trust with with their hearts. They confide in when needed, and more importantly, they learn a lot about the teacher coach philosophy that Scott Matthew Callahan and myself TK Griffith believe in with this podcast. So thank you very much to Micah Kraus. Thank you.